Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. Today is Sunday, May 3rd, 2020. The share ID numbers for Friday, May 1st, are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 14,539. That's 14539. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 14,539. 540, that's 14540. Today, A Vision for You presents, What Do You Mean My Life is Unmanageable? Step one states, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. The first step asks us to admit two things. One, that we are powerless over food, and two, that our lives have become unmanageable. Actually, we would be hard-pressed to admit one and not the other. Our unmanageability is the outward evidence of our powerlessness. Yes, we have a two-fold illness. The first part is that we are powerless over food we get uncontrollable physical cravings, cravings which overpower us when we eat certain foods. Our bodies are inherently flawed, biochemically different. We are powerless. The second part is that we can't manage our lives in relation to our powerlessness over food. We get mental obsessions that overpower all other thoughts and send us back to those very foods that we know, that we know will cause us the uncontrollable cravings. Our minds are inherently flawed. We are mentally different from others. Based on our own actual experience, we find ourselves in a deep pit of personal powerlessness and unmanageability. By accepting our powerlessness and unmanageability, we accept that we cannot recover alone. We need help. We need help bad. That help, the big book tells us in the second step, will come from a power greater than ourselves. Joining us this morning to speak on unmanageability is Melissa C., a recovered compulsive overeater from New York. Melissa's life has been transformed as a result of our 12 steps, and she's here to share with us regarding unmanageability. And it's with great pleasure and appreciation I welcome Melissa to the line this morning. Hi. Great. Oh, wow. Thank you, Leah. Thank you so much. That was a really Awesome intro. In fact, it was so thorough, I might, I might not have to say anything, um, which is kind of laughable because I always have something to say. Um, so uh, my name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater, and I live in New York. Um, and, you know, the title about um, unmanageability, um, you know, it was, was kind of easy for me to put together because... Um, that's always been my big question. Um, 
like, what do you mean I'm unmanageable? What do you mean my life is unmanageable? And um, and so it was easy for me to develop a, a talk based around that that topic. Um, you know, to to kind of uh, qualify as to what you know gets me a seat here in this meeting. How do I deserve to have a seat here? Um, I have. I'll kind of quickly recap my my life because the the topic I'll be able to sort of share myself through the topic but um I'm I believe I was born a compulsive overeater or at least with um like all the markings of one that was going to be right so my first words I've always been told my first words were more more baba um which is pretty funny, right, that even at nine months old, I was screaming for more food. And um, and I've always had, as far back as I remember, this feeling of dissatisfaction, of a need to get more everything, more attention, more praise. Generally, more it felt like more food because that felt like something I could kind of sink my teeth into, right? And so my early memories, my very earliest memories are food memories. I have a very clear recollection of being really young, sneaking into the kitchen at night. Um, There was always a certain cake that my parents would get on Friday nights. We had a nice Friday night family um, Shabbat dinner, and there was a specific cake. And I just remember as a really little girl, the piece that I got was never enough, and I always longingly look forward to what I was going to get in the middle of the night by myself. And I would sneak into the kitchen, you know, walking very cautiously. I knew which floorboards would creak, um, and I would open the refrigerator just a crack because I knew the exact amount that I could open it without the light coming on that would signal someone that I was in the fridge. And so I recall, like, wiping the crumbs, the little crumbs off of the floor underneath the fridge because I always knew there was something wrong with the way that I was eating. And um, and so most of my life was spent trying to manage and control what others saw me eating <laughs> and manage and control what I was eating, and it always circled around my weight because the weight is a really good outward demonstration of the crazy that was going on inside me. And I had years of being able to manage and control my weight with a lot of pain and, um, and years where I truly could not. And even when my weight looked normal, my crazy was, you know, was extreme. It, it, in fact, it felt worse when I had the food down, and that's what really makes me a compulsive overeater. Um, so for for the topic of, and, and, and I'll just say that my top weight was over 300 pounds, um, and, and that was over 10 years ago. It was like 10 and a half years ago. And, um, and since then, I've um, lost about 160 pounds, and been able to, within the last six and a half years, have complete freedom from the food. Um, and we, and really <clears throat> admitting my powerlessness and my unmanageability was was the beginning 
of letting go of of, of the food owning me. So what if um what if I'm not living in the bedevilment? Like how can I possibly admit unmanageability um if I don't think that my life is all that bad, right? And um which is kind of funny because that's called denial, right? If you're living in that way, your life is my life was pretty bad. But um <clears throat> I'm going to, like, define, manage, right? Um, so manage. And I've got seven descriptions of, of the word manage. One, to be in charge. Two, to be able to supervise. Three, administer and regulate. Four, handle. Five, maintain control. Six, succeed in surviving or attaining one's aims, and seven, to cope. And when I look at that right here now, I'm like, well, clearly, <laughs> you know, I was unmanageable because I wasn't able to do any of those seven things. And, um, you know, but oftentimes when um, when people talk about unmanageability, um, I, I somehow, my mind went right to the bedevilments. And, you know, and the bedevilments um, in We Agnostics on page 52, we were having trouble with personal relationships. We couldn't control our emotional natures. We were prey to misery and depression. We couldn't make a living. We had a feeling of uselessness. We were full of fear. We were unhappy. And we couldn't seem to be of real help to other people. And, um, but really... The bedevilments to me, those are the consequences of unmanageability. That's the evidence of an unmanaged life. And um, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding around the word. I think people often point out the things in their life that that are manageable when they're not wanting to admit unmanageability. And, and that was, that was my position. You know, there's this, like a confusion and this sort of defensive posture that I've took and I've heard others take that and we kind of point out what's still working, right? So for me, um I would say, well, I still had my job and and I was always pretty good at my job. Um certainly not great, <laughs> but at the time I thought I was doing pretty good at it. Um you know, I would say like my bills were paid, right? I paid my mortgage and and my marriage didn't total my marriage didn't fall apart it was probably on its way but um i had my kids right my house looked it looked somewhat okay so i couldn't understand how that how i could be unmanageable and you know i think sometimes there's a danger when um when we carry the message and we focus on the consequences because um and I've done it, right? I talk about how heavy I got or the crazy diets I tried or, like, the lengths I went to. And, you know, the danger is is that if you're speaking to someone, right, and, and, our, and our purpose is to always be helpful, right, to carry the message to the still sick and suffering. So if I lead with how crazy my disease got, I might be speaking to someone who didn't get as heavy as I got, right, who didn't go to the same lengths that I went to. And they might sit and think, oh, well, yeah, 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 no, it's not as bad for me as it is for her, 
right? This isn't such a serious problem. You know, or if I'm speaking to someone whose horror story is worse than mine, right, they could sit and think, oh, yeah, no, it worked for her, but I'm far worse than she is, and so it won't work for me. Um, You know, and so even though I was always able to hold a job and I paid my bills, I was still suffering from a state of unmanageability. And, and And, you know, what I come to see is if you're waiting until all aspects of your life circle the drain, like you can, and this disease is progressive, so in my thinking is, um, oh yeah, it will, it will, like all the things that you think you're going to wait for to see them happen before you do anything, they'll happen, you know, Um, and on one hand, unmanageable could solely refer to the fact, right, that I cannot manage the most basic function of all, right? Forget my mortgage, forget my job, forget my marriage. I can't seem to manage how much food I take in, right? That's like the most basic function. And and I found out, yes, it's because I have an allergy, right? And But many people have food allergies, and they're not unmanageable because they simply just don't eat them. What really makes me is unmanageable is that I cannot seem to manage keeping away from the foods and the eating behaviors that I know I'm allergic to. And, you know, so if you are manageable, right, if you're some somebody or you have a system, a problem that is manageable, what it means is that you can rely on certain tools, or systems or practices and methods that keep things running well, right? And and if something is manageable, it means that the methods consistently keep things operating well. And, you know, so I've shared, I'm a teacher, right? In my profession, I'm a teacher, and we love to talk about effective classroom management. That's like a big buzzword among among teachers. And and I've and I've been teaching it's um, t- over 23 years and um and I love I happen to love teaching, so I do talk about it a lot. And and I've had the honor of working with student teachers and with new teachers and mentoring them. And if I'm assisting somebody in becoming an effective teacher, I um might talk to her about her classroom management, and we would look to see how the students were doing. That would be the evidence of her management. And if things weren't going well, we would tweak her methods and try some new things. And so long as she was consistent or he was consistent, we could find the right things that would work with the class. And that's been my experience, right? Some problems, some groups are more challenging, so you have to try a few more methods and but generally all classes are manageable and in my experience has shown me that in dealing with my disease of compulsive overeating I can't rely on any method no method that I have tried is is effective none of them are consistently effective in fact I put together this list of 26 things um that are highlighted in the big book that I have tried to manage this problem with. And, you know, I'm so stubborn and relentless in my pursuit at management. 
what I've come to see is I don't give up easily. I've tried all 26 of them, and I think, like, that is mind-boggling to me, like, that we, on one hand, um, often think of ourselves as quite weak, right? We're weak. If I I would just get stronger, um, I could beat this thing. But I would say that anybody you've met who had an issue and they tried 26 different methods to solve their issue, I don't think you would say that person was weak. I think you would say the problem is unmanageable. That which they're trying to solve is something that they can't. Um, And so in the doctor's opinion, it, it says real, just like one line, we're of the type with whom other methods have failed completely, right? And and our big book does an excellent job highlighting this. And and my talk is really going to be about delving into the text to create a list of all the methods I cannot use to manage my disease. And and the objective is to snuff out the thought that I can still do this job alone. And and it's the second part of step one, and it's necessary to drive us out of this delusion that we can solve our own problems. Um, and so... In Bill's story, on page five and six, it says, um, shortly afterward, I came home drunk. There had been no fight. Where had been my high resolve? I simply didn't know. It hadn't even come to mind. Someone had pushed a drink my way, and I had taken it. Was I crazy? I began to wonder. For such an appalling lack of perspective seemed near being just that. Renewing my resolve, I tried again. Some time passed, and confidence began to be replaced by cocksureness. I could laugh at the gin mills. Now I had what it takes. One day I walked into a cafe to telephone, and in no time I was beating on the bar, asking myself how it happened. As the whiskey rose to my head, I told myself I would manage better next time, but I might as well get good and drunk then. And so... As I go through this, I said, I'm going to make a list. And, like, if you're, you know, I'm, a, I'm like, I'm a bookish kind of girl. I like to take notes and I like to number things. And um, you might want to make this list with me, but if not, at the end, I'm going to, like, read the 26 things. And so in this short paragraph, I've already got four things I can't use. One, fighting, right? Two, resolve. Three, my mind. And four, perspective. So... For me, like, in fighting, fighting this disease has looked like getting really serious about the severity of my problem. And, and I've done that, right? I'm like, that's it. I would gather up my arsenal of diet strategies and, um, and all my nutritional knowledge, and I'm going to come at it from this angle that I can beat this problem. And I've done this hundreds and probably thousands of times, but the fight always results in me losing. I can't sustain the energy required to fight for long. That, that's, my, that's my problem. And resolve, right? So the other one is resolve. And even that word kind of tells me that I'm going to re-solve this, right? Re-meaning I'm going to do it again. And, um, and if it's a problem that I've solved, then why do I need to re-solve it? Why do I need to do it again? And it's because it never works for the long haul, right? Um, And then 
my mind, right? Third is my mind. And the problem I have with making up my mind is that my mind can't consistently stay made up. And it often felt like I just changed my mind. Like I would give myself a start date, and then as the date approached, I'd make up my mind and I would change the date. And, you know, and so it would be like, all right, oh, I'll start after the weekend, after my birthday, right, after the holidays. Um, I was always just changing my mind, even about the food, right? I would say, oh, I can't eat that. And then as the food was in front of me, I would say, yeah, no, I think that food's okay, right? Um, Okay, and perspective. Perspective is the way of looking at this. So I couldn't fairly assess, you know, if you've got perspective, you can fairly assess the seriousness of a problem. And I can't fairly assess the seriousness of this problem in the moments when I need to understand just how critical the nature of my problem really is. Like, I can always seem to have good perspective and understand the seriousness of the problem after the fact or in theory, right? But in the middle of the situation, I can't appreciate and apply the seriousness. I can't apply perspective. Um, Now, in Bill's story on page 8, it says, Trembling, I stepped from the hospital a broken man. Fear sobered me for a bit. Then came that insidious insanity of that first drink. So number five now is fear. Um, I can't use fear. (laughs) I've been terrified, right? I received a diagnosis um, when I was like just about 40 that my blood pressure was dangerously high. And my doctor told me um, that I wasn't going to live to see the end of my 40s. And... um, And I was also warned by a dentist that the enamel on my teeth um, was wearing down from all my gum chewing. Like that's, you know, that's how unsexy my disease is, that I compulsively chewed gum. And and I was terrified about what that was going to mean for my teeth in the long haul. And I was terrified about the prospect of dying, you know, in my 40s somewhere. Um, And fear didn't work. It never sobered me up. In fact... The more fearful I've been, the more I've needed to eat. So, you know, what my solution was when I was told about the gum chewing was I bought more gum. And when the doctor told me my blood pressure was dangerously high, on the way home from his appointment, I went through the drive-thru. So fear doesn't work. Um, You know, now if I move into um, there's a solution, on page 22 to 23, it says... um, We know that while the alcoholic keeps away from drink, as he may do for months or years, he reacts much like other men. We're equally positive that once he takes any alcohol, whatever, into his system, something happens both in the bodily and mental sense, which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. The experience of any alcoholic will abundantly confirm this. These observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic, we know it centers in his mind rather than in his body. And if you ask him why he started on that last bender, 
the chances are that he will offer you any one of a hundred alibis. Sometimes these excuses have a certain plausibility, but none of them really make sense in the light of the havoc an alcoholic's drinking bout creates. They sound like the philosophy of the man who, having a headache, beats himself on the head with a hammer so he can't feel the ache. If you draw this fallacious reasoning to the attention of the alcoholic, he will laugh it off or become irritated and refuse to talk. And once in a while, he may tell the truth, and the truth, strange to say, is he usually has no idea why he took that first drink, right? Um, Some drinkers have excuses with which they're satisfied part of the time, but in their hearts, they really do not know why they do it. And once this malady has a real hold, they're a baffled lot. There is the obsession that somehow, someday, they will beat the game, but they often suspect they're down for the count. So in that, you know, couple of paragraphs, we've got some more methods we can't use. Number six is reasoning. Number seven is talking. And eight is truth. So my own experience was that any reason I gave, when I applied reasoning, right, any reason I gave for picking up the food from, um, you know, my dad died, right? So my dad died, so my reasoning is I'm going to eat. Or it's a birthday celebration, I'm going to eat. There's no real reason that could explain why I would knowingly cause myself to return to the hell of the food. You know, you couldn't, and you couldn't talk me through this problem, right? So therapists, right, a therapist couldn't talk to me about it, or a friend, or a good lecture. Um, And as far as the truth, I certainly, I can't differentiate what's true and what's untrue, right? My alcoholic life seems normal. I can't tell what's what's honesty and what's dishonesty. Um, And there's a solution on page 24. It says, the fact that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We're unable at certain times to bring into consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago. We are without defense against the first drink. So there in that important paragraph, we've got number nine now is choice. 10 is willpower, and 11, memory, um, 12, suffering, and 13, humiliation, right? Um, So I've never just been able to make better food choices, right? And and I've heard um, at meetings, I've I've even heard this recently, someone say um, that they no longer choose to hurt themselves with food. And and I remember being, like, dumbfounded by that Um, because, like, do you mean to tell me that I've just been choosing to hurt myself with my eating and that all it takes is for me to choose something different? Like, that would be so simple if I could merely choose something different, I would never need any steps, right? And and as for willpower, 
Like, I have used every bit of willpower I've ever had. And at best, it's temporarily effective. Like, I, my, I do have willpower, right? But here's the problem. It has an expiration date, and I don't know when it's going to expire. Like, it's all of a sudden, it's gone. So it's completely unreliable. And I never know when it's going to run out. Um, and as for memory, I've got a great memory for all sorts of things. But where food is concerned, I have a form of food senility. And I have a really good friend um, that, I, that I study the book with. Um, and she talks about the memory, um, and, and it's like a bridge. And um, maybe sometimes she'll come on here and get to share it because I think it's a really great illustration. But for me, I, my, my way of explaining um, not being able to access memory or apply it when I need it the most is um, I have this commute that I take to work every day, although not now because I'm not commuting these days. I commute from my bedroom into the kitchen. Um, but normally I have this commute that I take. And on my commute, it's down the New York State Thruway, there's a part of the throughway where I know that there's a cop hiding under the underpass because it's it it often there's there's usually a police car there and I have a I have a good memory so I can adjust my speed as I'm approaching that that spot on the throughway right and so what happens is I can I can speed you know somewhat on my travels into work and um and about mm, about a quarter mile before i reach that spot the memory right of oh 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 there's going to be a cop there i better like ease up on the gas comes real clear and i just sort of let go of you know i release the gas a little bit more um but i can't apply that where food is concerned i don't seem to remember where the danger lies for me. It's it's like not when I need it, that memory is not accessible when I need it. And, you know, and so so the next thing on the list is suffering and um, humiliation. And I have definitely suffered in this disease. You know, I've had physical suffering. Um, besides like the sufferings of morbid obesity. And, and if you've suffered with that form that physical form of this disease, it's really painful. It's painful physically, right? But I've also um, tried to manage and control my disease with exercise, and I've suffered physical suffering due to my exercise. Like I got this bright idea at one point that I could um, really um, exercise, you know, crazily. Of course, I was like 300 pounds at the time, and um, I broke my foot on a treadmill, um, and it was really painful. I broke my foot because I found out that I burn a lot more calories if I do it on the steepest incline, and I did, and my foot was killing me, but I continued because I needed to burn off. I was looking at the calorie count on the treadmill, and I needed to burn off a certain amount of calories because I knew what I'd eaten, and I had to get that off my off my body, and I broke my foot. And 
Um, and actually, what's awful was I got um, a cortisone injection to help. It was like a, to help it heal, and I was told like it's going to feel better, but you've got to let it rest. And I ignored that warning from my doctor, so I actually rebroke it, and that was extraordinarily painful. Um, and and humiliating. It was like a little embarrassing to go back to the doctor. Um, having not listened to what he had said to me. Um, but also, as far as humiliation, um, you know, I gained 100 pounds in high school, and there's probably little else in my life that could be more humiliating than that. And it didn't work. So humiliation doesn't work for this either. Um, you know, in in more about alcoholism on page 30, it says that, we alcoholics are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. We know that no real alcoholic ever recovers control. All of us felt at times that we were regaining control, but such intervals, usually brief, were inevitably followed by still less control, which led in time to pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization we are convinced to a man that alcoholics of our type are in the grip of a progressive illness. Over any considerable period, we get worse, never better, right? So now I've got number 14 on my list, which is considerable periods, um, which is time, right? So I've had some considerable periods of time without food. Um, you know, in my early 20s, I first discovered OA, and I found out that I had a problem with sugar and flour, and it really made sense to me. Um, like, I got the idea of the allergy, and I stopped eating sugar, totally stopped at that point, and I did nothing else, really. I didn't follow anything else, um, and because I was younger, and I guess my disease hadn't progressed all the way until the point when it would eventually get to, I was able to leave it alone for a few years. Um, you know, and, and it was long enough to meet my husband, to get married, and on my honeymoon I picked up a drink, which led me to the food, and it didn't matter how much time it had passed. Like, I found out on that honeymoon that my um, problem was actually so much worse than it had been when I had put it down a few years before that. Like, my food addiction had grown exponentially, and what was, like, alarming to me was that I had a food plan that I worshipped and believed in, and when I got back from the honeymoon, I couldn't get back on it no matter what. So considerable periods didn't work. It didn't get me any stronger, right? Um, in, in more about alcoholism, on page 32 through 33, um, it talks about the man of 30. And here it says that um, he remained bone dry for 25 years, right? Um, and then he retired at age 55. And, um, and at that point, he fell victim to the belief, which practically every alcoholic has, 
And so there's that period of time again, the long period of sobriety and self-discipline, right, had qualified him to drink as other men. Out came his carpet slippers and a bottle, and in two months he was in a hospital, puzzled and humiliated. He tried to regulate his drinking for a while, making several trips to the hospital meantime, and then gathering all his forces, he attempted to stop altogether and found he could not. Every means of solving his problem, which money could buy, was at his disposal, and every attempt failed. Though a robust man at retirement, he went to pieces quickly and was dead within four years. So I already, like, listed long period, right? That's the considerable time, so I've got that. But now number 15 is self-discipline, 16 is regulating, 17 is force, and 18 is money. And so I have I have good self-discipline in other areas, like mostly work-related. Um, you know, I can – when I went um, back to school and I was going to get my master's, um, I had really good self-discipline. I was able to, like, say that um, I need to study, you know, this amount of time and I wasn't going to socialize and I was going to do this and – and I could, and I could do that. I could, I could apply self-discipline in those areas, um, and um, and I can regulate, you know, control and adjust many things in my life, except my food intake or my food choices. Like no matter how much I've tried to use self-discipline to regulate my eating, and when I when I see the word regulate, it makes me think of diets, right? So. No matter how much I tried um, to force myself to stick to a diet, like it, it didn't work, or, or rather it did work, but because I was relying on willpower, it would suddenly stop working, and I could not re-regulate myself again. And so every single diet I went on to regulate worked beautifully until the day it didn't work, and then it never worked effectively again. I could never get it to work the way it had worked the first time. Um, and, and, and so money, right, money being um, a way to, to manage this, like, I spent so much money. I, I, like, all the schemes that I threw money at, like, and how much, um, I think back, like, how much others have profited over my misery. Um, there's a whole industry out there that um, profits over the misery, I think, of, of those of us with this food addiction. Um, you know, in my um, senior year in high school, my parents spent thousands of dollars to get me into this special medically um, supervised program, um, and my parents' insurance didn't cover it. And so um, they spent a lot of money, and it didn't work for the long haul. And um, what I've actually found out is that in my insanity, the more expensive a, um, a promise was, like the more expensive a scheme was, and the crazier it was, the more I placed my faith in it. Like, I would spend so much money on things 
that were clearly a scam, but I I put all my faith into it. Like, I just believed it had to work if it was expensive. Of course it's going to work if it costs me a lot of money. And, um, you know, that's insanity, right? On page 36, we've got um, Jim here. And here it says, um, suddenly the thought crossed my mind that if I were to put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it surely couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. I ordered a whiskey and poured it into the milk. I vaguely sensed I was not being too smart, but felt reassured as I was taking the whiskey on a full stomach. The experiment went so well that I ordered another whiskey and poured it into more milk. That didn't seem to bother me, so I tried another. And here it says he had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, yet all reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if only he mixed it with milk, right? Whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. How can such a lack of proportion of the ability to think straight be called anything else? So now I've got 19, right? Um, Knowledge about yourself, 20, proportion, um, and 21, ability to think. So for knowledge about myself, like I know a lot about myself. Um, I've read self-help books. I've gone to therapy. I've, like, done all this, like, digging deep stuff. I'm going to really get to know me. And having knowledge, right, and I even have good knowledge about what my disease is, and having knowledge and applying that knowledge are two totally different things, right? So having knowledge doesn't doesn't do anything for me. Um, and proportion, you know, is being able to put things in the right perspective, right? Having proportion, knowing which things are more important than the other. And um, do I truly know what's important, right? Like what could be more important than my health? When when I made decisions, like I would just um, decide what I can eat when I get to the party, right? So I've done that before saying, um, well, I'll just, I'll just decide when I get there. Like, you know, and, and, and I would do that because I didn't want to put the hostess out, right? Or I don't want to be, um, I don't want to be like that kind of person. It's so rude. Or I didn't want to bring my own food because that would make me like, that would make me stand out or it might insult the person whose house I'm bringing the food to, um, to me, that's showing lack of proportion because I know I've got a deadly allergy and I've known that for a long time. And if my child, right, I've got two kids, if my either of my kids had a deadly peanut allergy, I would certainly show more thought about what they could eat. I, I would know that proportionately, their health and well-being is far more important than the chance that I would be insulting a hostess, right? If I went to someone's house, I would easily ask, like, 
is there any peanuts in the food that you're serving? And if I didn't think I could trust the person, I would just easily bring food for my kids on their own or feed them beforehand. But I couldn't do that for myself before, you know, because I had no proportion. I had no ability to see what was important. And um, and as far as the ability to think, like, I'm really capable of thinking. I've got pretty good, clear thinking, but not in relation to my disease or where food is concerned and my compulsive eating. I could not apply my ability to think. Um, on page 39, <clears throat> it says that the actual or potential alcoholic, with hardly an exception, will be absolutely unable to stop drinking on the basis of self-knowledge. And this is a point we wish to emphasize and re-emphasize, to smash home upon our alcoholic readers as it has been revealed to us out of bitter experience. And so, you know, I did list, like, knowledge about myself, you know, before. And here it's just reworded. So I'm not going to, like, number it again. But self-knowledge... Um, I, I'm repeating it again because I really thought that that would help me. And and I've heard people examine, like, I've heard some crazy things at, at meetings. I've heard people, and, and even, like, in working with people, and I've done it myself, that we're going to examine our birth order. And we're going to talk about our abusive childhoods and issues with self-loathing, as well as all other difficulties. And those things may very well be true and they may be problematic and worth talking about, but I don't know as far as in a meeting, right, um, and merely identifying them in an attempt to know myself better is not enough and it's not even related to having a psychic change. Like just knowing that will not get me to have a personality change. And, and even just identifying that I'm a compulsive overeater, like knowledge of that, like, oh, so now that I know I've got a sugar addiction, now that I know that I have a problem with, with, um, with volume, right? Oh, now that I know that, now I'm better? No, <laughs> no, self-knowledge isn't enough. It's like, it's like finding out you've got strep throat and then expecting that now that I know this, my throat's going to stop hurting and I won't ever take an antibiotic, right? So, and that's the mistake I made with my food addiction. I thought, once I know it, now I'm better. And that's, that's not true. Um, page 41 and 42, it says, here's Fred. And as, I, as soon as I regained my ability to think, I went carefully over that evening in Washington. Not only had I been off guard, I had made no fight whatever against the first drink. This time I had not thought of the consequences at all. I had commenced to drink as carelessly as though the cocktails were ginger ale. I now remembered what my alcoholic friends had told me, how they had prophesied that if I had an alcoholic mind, the time and place would come, I would drink again. They had said that though I did raise a defense, it would one day give way before some trivial reason for having a drink. 
Well, just that did happen and more. For what I had learned of alcoholism did not occur to me at all. I knew from that moment that I had an alcoholic mind. I saw that willpower and self-knowledge would not help in those strange mental blank spots. I had never been able to understand people who said that a problem had them hopelessly defeated. I knew then it was a crushing blow. So in, in Fred's story there, I've got 22 now staying on guard, number 23, consequences, and number 24, defense. And so for staying on guard, right, the problem with staying on guard is who's the guard, right? I'm the guard. And and so the biggest danger of all is is the one that's being placed in the position to do the guarding. And so if I think about it, it's like, um, okay, there I am. I'm going to lock the door against the enemy, only I just locked myself in with the big enemy because it's me, you know, and and so consequences, right? I've certainly experienced consequences of compulsive eating, right? Weight gain, high blood pressure, no clothes fitting, sleep apnea, digestive difficulties, broken foot, you know, damaged enamel on my teeth. Um, I know that consequences um, are extremely effective ways to manage behavior. They are. Like, that's what we use. You know, I'm going to get back to the classroom. We're all about punishments and rewards. Like, like um, and that's really good behavior management techniques. Those are wonderful strategies, um, but they don't work for me. They don't work where food is concerned. It's not effective. Um, consequences don't work here. There, there's no consequence that keeps me from eating. It, it hasn't worked before. Um, and defense means that I'm going to resist attack. And for me, the food always won, right? It's cunning. It's baffling. It's powerful. I can't defend myself against it because it doesn't appear like an enemy, right? It's like... Um, it's it's very handsome. It's like the, you know, I say I've said before. It's like it's like the boyfriend. It's like the world's worst boyfriend that always gets me to go back out with him. And you know, and he doesn't do that by by coming in by you know calling me and calling me names, right? It like it it comes in sweet talking me. It comes in very innocently like um like oh yeah you left your sweater here you want to come over and pick it up you know like it doesn't it, it and yet but and then before i know it it's it's got me right it's it's like hurting me all over again and that's what this disease was like it doesn't come in on a cupcake like you know so i can't defend myself against it because you know it breaks down my defenses um with sloppy measurement, like it breaks down my defenses with an extra serving, with a food that I've considered safe because it sounds healthy or harmless. And, you know, but you know in your heart it really isn't. It comes in for me 
in look-alike foods. So I can't defend myself against something that looks so innocent, that looks so harmless. Um, and so defensing, defending myself is ineffective. Um, you know, in in working with others, on page 101, it says, in our belief, any scheme of combating alcoholism, which proposes to shield the sick man from temptation, is doomed to failure. If the alcoholic tries to shield himself, he may succeed for a time, but he usually winds up with a bigger explosion than ever. We've tried these methods. These attempts to do the impossible have always failed. So I've got like my last two things on the list, combats and shield, right? And combat means fight. So anything that I'm attempting to combat, anything that I'm attempting to fight really means that it's controlling me, you know? And and I have no peace when I'm fighting. Um, I always thought that I was going to have to become better at fighting this. And um, and I can't fight it. it. It's just it's just way too big and too powerful for someone like me. Um, and as for shields, you know, my experience with shields was I simply would remove the shield, you know, or I would avoid the shield, but not what's being shielded. And so, you know, in the past, when I would want to shield myself from food, I would I would tell my family, that's it. No more candy in this house, right? No more chocolate in this house. And and I would demand selfishly that it would be eaten away from my sight. I would make rules for my family to tell them that they can't have it in the house and they can't eat it in front of me. And I would throw things out that weren't mine because I had to shield myself from it. You know, and I would and then I would do things like tell my husband, Don't let me eat blank, whatever it was. Don't let me eat candy. Don't let me eat the cupcakes. Don't let me eat, you know, whatever it was. And then, like, what would happen is I would go out and I would eat it in secret. I would I would eat it in my secret sorted places, which was the car, you know, or like really gross and disgusting. I would eat it in a bathroom. And, you know, and I would suddenly start buying those items again that I just threw out like a day or two ago the ones that I expected my family to never eat in front of me. And now I would bring it back in the house and I would expect my family to ignore the demands that I just put on them a day or so earlier. And not only would I expect them to ignore the demands, but I would want them to pretend that I never said anything about it. Like we make the people we live with crazy and neurotic. Um, And no wonder why people gave me a hard time about getting abstinent. No wonder why they questioned me and my abstinence. And and even still, sometimes, you know, like my husband, um, he loves me, and he certainly doesn't want to see me, you know, pick up the food again. But sometimes he'll say things like, wait, you really won't have this chicken, or, you know, because it was marinated in something that had, like, dextrose in it. Like, that doesn't even say sugar, Melissa. Or he'll say, like, it's like the last ingredient there. It says like traces or, you know, and, and, and I don't get angry at him anymore because how could I expect him to not question me, right? Like, 
how could I expect him to understand the severity of this? Like, just because in the last really six and a half years, like I came back in it's ten and a half years ago, but it's six and a half years that I really got serious about the severity of my disease, and 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 I became recovered. But do I expect him to erase the memories of the twenty five years that I like, you know? was using him as a as a shield to combat this. And, you know, the thing is I've learned he doesn't have to worry about those things. He doesn't have to respect the boundaries of my food choices. Nobody does except for me. I'm the only one. You know, it's my responsibility. Nobody else's. Um, so I know, like, we usually talk about unmanageability as far as bedevilments. And, yep, and I've definitely had experiences with many of the bedevilments, but I haven't suffered all of them yet, <laughs> you know. And do I believe that the most painful consequences await me if I once again decide that I am manageable? Like I do, you know. Um, and some people believe that it's best to wait until everything is destroyed. And I love how the um, AA 12 and 12 explains it on page 22. And I'm just going to kind of quickly um, go through this, and then I'll be <clears throat> pretty much finished. But it says, like, that um, in the first edition of um, the book Alcoholics Anonymous, when the membership was small, it dealt with, it dealt with low-bottom cases only. And um, and that less desperate alcoholics tried AA, um, but they did not succeed because um, they could not make the admission of hopelessness, right? And it's a tremendous satisfaction to record that in the following years this changed, that alcoholics who still had their health, their families, their jobs, and even two cars in the garage began to recognize their alcoholism. And um, and so and and they're spared the last ten or fifteen years of literal hell, right? And so here it is. It says since step one requires an admission that our lives have become unmanageable, how could people such as these take this step? So it's obviously necessary to raise the bottom. The rest of us have hit to the point where we'd hit them. And by going back in our own drinking histories, we could show that years before we realized it, we were out of control, that our drinking even then was no mere habit, that it was indeed the beginning of a fatal progression. And to the doubters, we could say, perhaps you're not alcoholic after all. Why don't you try some more controlled drinking? You know, and I would say, like, hey, why don't you try some more of these management strategies? But, like, bear in mind what, what we've said about alcoholism and, you know, and so then it's discovered that when one alcoholic had planted in the mind of another the true nature of his malady, that person could never be the same again. And following every spree, he would say to himself, maybe those AAs were right, right? And, and so hopefully that's what having this list does. And I think, you know, it is my obligation to raise the floor a bit but not remove the individual's unique experience of desperation. So I can't do anything other than share what I've learned. And, and for me, I say, like, live in a way that recovery looks like the most beautiful gift that it is. And it really is. And, 
And I feel passionate about that. You know, I I believe that it's our obligation if we're recovered to sell it by showing up recovered, you know. Um, that, And then I share really that um, I'm not equipped to manage my disease and certainly not my life. Nothing human could fix me. And, and the purpose of this is to lead me right into step two, which is God can manage this, not me. And so I'm just going to really quick, before I end, I'm going to read the 26 things that I've listed, right? And um, number one is fighting, two, resolve, three, my mind, four, perspective, five, fear, six, reasoning, seven, talking, eight, truth, nine, choice, 10, willpower, 11, memory, 12, suffering, 13, humiliation, 14, considerable periods, 15, self-discipline, 16, regulating, 17, force, 18, money, 19, knowledge about yourself, 20, proportion, 21, ability to think, 22, staying on guard, 23, consequences, 24, defense, 25, combats, and 26, shields. And so if you have a problem and you have tried to manage your problem and you have tried 22, 26, different strategies for managing it, I think it becomes clear that your problem is unmanageable. And um, thank you. With that, I'm going to pass. Thank you so much, Melissa, for your compelling and thorough, beautiful presentation this morning. Thank you for sharing your experience, strength, and hope with all of us on the line. Today's share ID, 14,549. That's one four five four nine. Melissa's contact information will be at the conclusion of the recording, so please stay tuned for that. We will now transition to a question and answer segment. You can pose a question to Melissa by pressing star one to unmute. I need your first name, including the first letter of your last name. Pete B. Hey Pete. Who else? Cindy C. Cindy C. Colleen M. Judy K. Judy K. Becca R. Becca R. Terry W. Stacy K. All right, this is who I have Pete B. Cindy C. Colleen M. Judy K, Becca R, Terry W, Stacy K. So everybody, please mute except for Pete. Thank you, Leah. Can you hear me okay? I hear you well. Great. Uh, so thank you for your service, Leah. Uh, Melissa, um, I just you know, first before I before I ask you what I've been wanting to ask this question for a long time. You're the most. I'm hoping. I'm having a really hard time hearing. I don't know. Is it just me? Is it me or I, I thought I heard some other noise besides me? Can you? Yeah, everybody could you. please mute. 
and let's hear Pete. Awesome. Okay. okay, go ahead. So, like I said, I've been really wanting to ask this question. I think you're most qualified to ask it. Hold on, I'm gonna. I have. I'm definitely me. So how about now? Not much better, right? Pretty much. Yeah, I'm clearing up the line. Go ahead, Pete. Let's persevere through it. Okay. So, um, first of all, I was already a huge Melissa C fan, and now it's even it's even greater than that. That was such an effective and thorough, deep and heavy presentation. I don't think I will ever forget it, and I will reference it to those I work with going forward. So that's enough of uh, that's enough of that, but definitely something else. But I'm curious about your your perspective on this. You know, the, the step one is written. Almost in the past tense, it says, admitted we were powerless over alcohol. And then, you know, if we, consider, if we consider to read through and go through the program, it says that we were restored to sanity. And I'm just curious, like, why, what, what does that mean, were powerless over alcohol? Does that mean that we are forever, we, with, you know, indefinitely, we will never have the, the, the ability to bring into consciousness with sufficient force the memory of the pain and suffering and humiliation caused by food? Or do we get restored to sanity and that we can bring that into consciousness? And I'm just curious about your perspective on that. Yeah, that's good. That's a good question. I think both. <laughs> you know, first, thank you. By the way, thank you. That was, like, super flattering. My ego is like, I'm going to need, like, some, some help putting myself back in place. But th- So thank you for that, Pete. Um, but the, um, you know, yeah, we are restored to sanity in a sense that, um, you know, it says, like, in Step 10, that's one of the promises. If I remain in fit spiritual condition, when tempted... I will recoil as if from a hot flame, right? So when tempted, yeah, I probably can say, "Whoa, there's a memory of this. This, this is crazy. I'm, I'm, you know, but, but I'm not relying on me, right? My management is no longer me. It's my higher power. It's, it's on um, maintaining fit spiritual condition and working with my higher power, and, and, um. I, and what I found out is that I can't, those things, I can't rely on them for long. I've got like a second maybe of reliability on any one of these things, and now I've got to get to the real power source, the, the thing that I can rely on. And, um, and I am forever, I believe, forever powerless to food um, because I know and I believe that the food will always have that allergic response in me and I'm and I'm restored to sanity because I'm I'm no longer interested in testing the theory, right? I don't know I mean, I don't care if the allergy has been removed. I certainly wouldn't test it. You know, and that to me is a restoration to my sanity. I hope that answers it. Thank you, Pete. It does. Thank you so much. Thank you again. Thanks. Cindy C., your turn. I'm Lesta, Cindy. I, too, am a loyal fan of Melissa C. Um, what I wanted to ask today for a little bit of clarity for myself is uh, when – 
we are working with others. We need to work with others and get a lot of butts. You know, want what we have, and they ask us to sponsor them, and they listen. Then they'll send them in, or and you know, we know we're not supposed to argue with anything in the book. We know this; it's all factual. It worked for the first 100, or it'll work for us too. And I know, you know, great minds have said, all we need to do is recover, recover, recover. But as a sponsor, if you could just talk a little bit about um, staying strong when you get a lot of butts. Thanks. So, okay, so, like, so when you're looking to help someone and they're, is it like they're arguing with you? Is that sort of what you're? They're debating. I'm not sure if that was that what you were asking, Cindy. Are you able to hear me? I hear you. Let's go with that. Okay. Yes. Okay. So I mean, look, I'm really, I'm like super, I'm super loving and kind and clear, but anybody that's worked with me knows I'm not arguing. Like, I'm not, I really, I can't, I don't have the energy. And, um, and, and, um, and, I, and I say to people, look, um, what happened for me is I took the life jacket, I took the life preserver that was thrown my way, and I didn't argue about the color of it. I didn't argue with the person that I was asking to rescue me. I didn't tell them, really, I want a life preserver that straps between my legs and not around my waist. I just grabbed hold, and I held on to it for dear life. And so I say to somebody who's arguing with me, I, I always say, look, I am not the only person out there. There's like hundreds and thousands of us. I only have what worked for me. I have a set of experiences, and you came to me, right, because you thought that there was something in my experience that could be useful for you. If it's not useful for you, awesome. Let's be friends in the fellowship. Let's be sisters in this fellowship or brothers and sisters in the fellowship. And you can find someone else to help, and I will always smile at you. And I mean it, right? I'm going to be friendly with you, but I can only um, – and someone one time said to me once, like, so do you mean to tell me that if I don't commit my food or I don't blah, 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 I can't recover? And, like, I say, um, no, 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 I would never say that. But you can't recover with me because <laughs> that's the only thing I've got. So I really, I don't think we're in the business of arguing, you know, but we don't have to be mean about it, right? We just, because it says here, like, we, if we've made a friend, awesome. That's what we're directed to do. We make a friend and we let them go. So hope that answers it. Thank you, Cindy C. Colleen M., your turn. Good morning, everyone. Thank you, Melissa, and thank you, everyone who's doing service this morning. I'm Colleen M. from Maryland. So my question is, um, do you have any thoughts on helping someone who seems to have the first step, you know, mentally, they accept that they're a food addict, they accept their life is unmanageable, but they just cannot put the food down? Thanks. That's all I have. Okay. So... Um, you know, that's, that's step two, right? It's, uh, it's come to believe that a power greater than ourselves. And so, um, step one, you know, 
is is merely a like a recognition of of a fact. Step two is turning it over to to another power. And I, I you know, when I work with somebody, I realize it's hard to put. It is. It's hard to put the food down. Um, and I don't necessarily. I'm not someone who says to somebody, "Get three days and then call me." Right? I will talk to a person as they're getting clear, you know, because it it also says in the doctor's opinion that um, some people require a definite hospitalization, right? That they need some sort of treatment, and so in the earliest work I might do with someone is we'll sort of set up. What is the hospital going to look like for you, right? Because not everybody, I was, you know, morbidly obese, and there wasn't a hospital treatment that I knew of that was open for me. I think certain um, types of ways that the disease manifests, people do go into treatment centers. They get cleared up, and then we could start, you know, when, when they're clear, we could start working the steps with them. So I would say to somebody in the beginning, what are what are you willing like you're going to be uncomfortable like let's be clear there's a lot of discomfort around putting the food down it's not going to be easy um and and i help the person like establish some really tight parameters that are temporary measures until they get an influx of the power of the power right but um we can work together to put the food down, and they've got to be willing. Like I, I'll help somebody create a list. Uh, like you can tell, I'm a list lover, right? So I'll work with someone, and we create a really like a long list of all the things that they can do to help them remain free from the food. And my expectation is that they are going to exhaust that list while we're trying to to get clear. And if at any point they're not like they they won't use all those things on that list, then they're not willing, right? And 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 I'd say to somebody like, "Okay, you're going to take this list and now you're going to put it everywhere. You're going to take your list and you're going to put it you're going to tape it to the dashboard of your car. You're going to tape it on the refrigerator. You're going to tape it to the cookie jar. You're going to put it, you know, you're going to make a screenshot of it and put it on your phone. You're going to, whatever you have to do so that any place where the food is, you're going to see all the things that you're willing to do while you're getting clean, right, while you're clearing up so that we can work the steps. Um, and if they're not willing to do that, then, then they're not, you know, there's probably nothing I can do for them at that point. Um, thanks. Hope that helps. Thank you. Thanks, Colleen M. Judy K. Your turn. Hi, this is Judy K. Um, Melissa, thank you so much. Uh, what a wonderful talk. Obviously, very well prepared, and and you you put a lot into putting it together. I want to thank you very much for it. Um, <clears throat> And in listening to the question and answers, a lot of what I had in mind for um, asking about helping others to make the decision to put the food down, I think you've, you've really answered it. But the interesting thing is you listed 26, 26 things. Um, and 26 uh, is a special number. It happens to be a number for the name of God. 
And then they oh moved you to step two. Yes, it is. <laughs> the math was it. Um, and so after 26 <laughs> items, it brings us to step two where we come to believe that there's a power greater than us. And I just thought you'd like that little tidbit um, <laughs> of information. So um, I really appreciate it. And is, is there any one thing that made you decide to put the food down? Oh wow! First of all, I'm I am thrilled that to know that 26 has has that um, that meaning. That's really that's incredible. Um, especially since um, I had for the longest time in preparing this, um, I wanted 25. <laughs> like 25, 26, 26 doesn't seem like the kind of number that I like. Um, so that was pretty funny that it that it worked out to be 26. I really that makes me really thrilled. Um, was there one thing on here that um, that oh god that really got me to it? Um, oh geez, probably for me the last thing was my mind. You know because the the last thing that really um, got me um to the point where i i let go right where i just like admitted i can't do this was um i wasn't i i could feel like my ability to think was slipping i i started feeling like i was really going crazy um i was having panic attacks and and um and i never had that before in my life like i never had these crazy panic attacks and I was eating and I couldn't I couldn't eat them away and I was trying so hard to stop feeling that like terror if you've ever had a panic attack they're terrifying um and I would have them on my way into work as I was driving and I've loved driving I've actually driven cross country by myself in my early 20s and I'm a confident driver and I couldn't drive. I was terrified as I was driving. And so for me, it was my mind, I think. And, and my, you know, I kind of pride myself on my, on my intelligence and my ability to think. And, and losing my mind was probably the crushing blow. Um, thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Judy Kay. Becca R., your turn. Hey, it's Becca R., Recovered Compulsive Overeater from Kentucky. My question is about, um, I'm interested to see what your take is since you have multiple years, but in times of change with our food, and specifically this time of isolation, I've found, um, I've gotten a couple calls about people who are experiencing an increase in their um, exercise because we have uh, more opportunity to get out and take walks and be active. Um, And so with that, have you had that experience of changing, increasing, taking out um, calories or food or um, in regards to an increase in exercise or activity? And how do you go about those changes? Okay, yeah. So I'll tell you one of one of the things that I 
um, have realized is not only do I have to surrender um, all of this to God, is that I have to put many, not many, all decisions about my food intake in the hands of someone other than me. Because um, what comes in seemingly innocuous becomes becomes my enemy, right? And, and that's what I found out. So I don't make food decisions um, on myself. I don't. And actually, I've, I've sort of found the opposite happened, that, you know, what I was able to calorically take in at over 300 pounds, you know, weighing 160 pounds less, I have to eat less. You know, and that's what happened to me. And it happened gradually along the way because part of abstinence is um, not only is abstaining from my alcoholic foods and my alcoholic food behaviors, but it's working towards or maintaining a healthy body weight. And so in working towards it, you need less calorically at, you know, 140-something pounds than you do at 300 that's just the way it is. That's the way it works. And um, But I don't make those decisions on my own. Those are decisions. Um, and so I would say if that's something you're having issues with, um, yeah, we don't make food decisions on our own. And that's what I would suggest to you. Put it in the hands of a professional. And absolutely, I don't I never make a change in anything I eat personally without running it by my sponsor. Even for me, on a day-to-day basis, I commit my food, and if I make a change, I have to notify someone else. I need to let another adult, responsible adult know because I can't handle that responsibility on my own, Um, and I choose not to. I don't want to. So thanks. With that, I'll pass. Thank you, Becca R. Terry W., your turn. Hi, Melissa. This is um, Terry W. from Boston, and uh, I just can't thank you enough for your share today. Um, It was so insightful. Um, I've been in program 29 years, but I'm just recently starting through a vision for you doing the steps, and I'm on step one. So they would say that, you know, she is always going to touch someone. Well, you really touched me a lot today, and uh, because I'm on step one, it was just I mean, I know my life is unmanageable, and I've always said that, but I really just made it so much clearer to me <laughs> that how really unmanageable it really is. Yeah. So um, I really just wanted you to know that you, you really touched me today on your share, and it meant a lot. And in, I also wanted to say I'm also a list freak, and I thought you said at the beginning of this year that you want to list all 62. Is that something you can do offline? Twenty. It was 26 of them. Oh, I thought it was 62. Okay, perfect. No, no. No. Okay, well, th- maybe I'll come up with the rest. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank I you. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Thanks, Terry W. Stacy K. Good morning, Leah. Good morning, Melissa. This is Stacy K. in Colorado. Mm-hmm. Uh, thanks for your service. Thank you both. And, um, wow, I never... When I think about the things I've tried, I always think about more about alcoholism and the list there, you know. I never really thought about all those other things. Um, That was so cool. Um, My question is, do you ever try some of those things 
I mean, this isn't really a step one question, but like in trying to like rid yourself of um, your character defects, I don't know, maybe that's kind of a, you know, maybe that doesn't make sense as that question, but like, you know how like when it says we can't wish away our selfishness, you know, it's like, I, I just was wondering if you can kind of twist it a little bit and, yeah. and see if that, that question makes sense. Yeah, that's that's pretty neat. I think, um, thank you so much for that for that question, Stacey. So, um, you know, I think where my character defects are concerned, right, and that's probably a whole other, whole other topic, um, I, you know, I refer to the book as far as, like, our ideals, right, that we come up with ideals um, for how we're going to, how we're going to operate in the world, right, and that's something that we work through, like, with the, with the guides of our sponsor, with we look at our inventory work, we really look at our defects, and, and in perfecting them, right, I, I sort of come up with almost like a food plan, a behavior plan, right? Here are the things, like, if I'm living in agreement with God's will for me, I'm not going to do, right? And, and, and I'm going to try to live in a way as though I'm not, um, I'm not walking around practicing my defects to the best of my ability. And when I live in a way that I'm not practicing my defects to the best of my ability, God has the ability to remove them. And I think about it as a lot like my obsession with the food. I prayed, right? I asked God to remove my food obsession. And in the meantime, I'm going to eat abstinently. In the meantime, I'm going to eat, you know, in my food plan so that God can remove the desire. And I think it's the same with, with my defects. If I live in a way as though I'm not practicing them and perfecting my defects, God will remove them as it becomes necessary. And I, I don't know that I think only God can do all that. I think I can, I think every time I've tried to show resolve, right, or, or willpower in in my defects, I'm thinking that I can rid myself of them. So, yeah, I would say I probably can't use this in anything. I'm trying to look through this because, yeah, I've I've behaved in some humiliating ways in my defects, and, yep, humiliation didn't work because I did it again, right? So I, I think in everything, um, I'm unmanageable. I'm unmanageable. Thanks. Thanks for uh Thanks for that. Now I feel really, now I feel really bad. No, no, thank you. Thank you, Stacey. Thanks for that. And thank you to all who asked questions this morning. The time has gone so quickly. Thank you so much, uh, Melissa, for your extraordinary presentation this morning and sharing your personal insights. Obviously a well-prepared presentation and so helpful to me and I'm sure for so many. Again, the share ID for today 14,549. That's 14549. And we're going to close from page 164. You'll take a notice that the chapter is entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. 
but obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.